I think this is likely going to be the most complex liquidation or bankruptcy ever in the history due to the large number of creditors that were spread across different jurisdictions. I think FTX have more than 1 million creditors and I believe they operate or have customers from more than 50 countries. So this is going to be very complex. This episode is brought to you by Circle the issuer of USDC, which hopefully, as you all know, is the preferred stablecoin of digital natives and crypto natives with over 1.5 million holders globally. You'll hear more about USDC later in the show. All right, everyone, we're back with another episode of Empire. We've got Arthur from Defiance Capital. We got Santi joining, coming off a, uh, a long flight, it's pumping full of espresso right now. 20, so we 24 are, hours. We are happy to have uh, Santi back with us. We're pumped to have Arthur. So Arthur, welcome to Empire, my friend. Pleasure to be here. Yeah, man. Tough, tough year, huh? Tough year. Uh, you you obviously uh, got impacted by some of the stuff going on back in in like uh, May of this year with Three Arrows and, and and that whole debacle and and then this again. I know you're on the ground in Singapore, so I just want to ask, man, how how you doing? Like, has this has this been the toughest six months of your of your professional career? Yes, uh, definitely the toughest six months. Not just professional career. I think. When it comes to adult life-wise, definitely the toughest six months I have ever experienced. Yeah, and I think I was, I would say the event happened in June, um, prepared us very well uh, in terms of crisis and risk management. So we were relatively unaffected by the whole FTX event. But that cannot be said for a lot of my friends, not just in Singapore but all over the crypto industry as well. Um, a lot of them are badly hit and lost a huge chunk of their savings and portfolio. And it's just uh, very sad to see. Arthur, it seems like what I've seen, a lot of people in Singapore used FTX as an on and off ramp. And perhaps it, the people that I've heard and the companies that I've talked to, a lot of them, it feels like Singapore is one of the hardest hit areas, or at least the region is. Can you talk a little bit about like how FTX came to be so dominant there and people like, is there no other solution? It's just like, I'm curious to hear your perspective. Yep. Thanks. Thanks. Uh, that's a good question. So I think first of all, a big, there's a big push factor coming from the fact that Binance stopped serving Singapore users since last year, uh, largely due to the fact that they withdraw their application for a crypto license in Singapore and the Singapore Authority MS, Monetary Authority of Singapore, also put Binance on a list called the Investor Alert List, which, which means that they are not regulated. So that served as a push factor to for a lot of the users to start using FTX. And for unknown reason, FTX is not listed there, although they are also based offshore and offer the almost the identical services to Binance. I think, yeah, and FTX have a, a very good, I would say for most prosumers, have a very good user interface, very good liquidity, and you can also trade perpetual uh, futures contract there. Um, there are also local crypto exchanges available, but they are restricted to offering spot trading services only. So if you cannot access Binance, FTX become the natural second choice. Um, I think this also highlight um, a very classic 
Econs 101 concept, the unintended consequences. When the authority put Binance on investor alert list, but did not put FTX on it, that might seem as kind of like an implicit endorsement to FTX. And I think this is also worsened by the fact that the one of the sovereign wealth fund of Singapore, Tomase, were actually the lead investor for one of the last three rounds of uh, FTX. So I believe, according to Forbes, Tomase is one of the largest investor in FTX because they invested across all three rounds. That said, mm-hmm. I don't think um, F- Tomase made a wrong investment at that point of time because it was a highly contested deal uh, where a lot of the top VC are fighting to get into. And I'm sure they have done their due diligence. Um, is yeah, it's just unfortunate that happened. Yeah, it's a confluence of factors that lead to this. Did Did you ever look at the deal at any point in time to invest in FTX? I think I only look at the FTT deal when they were pitching to a lot of the crypto native at 2019. Um, we passed because uh, you know I wasn't convinced a new exchange is able to compete with the established one. Um, but yeah, after that, we never saw the equity deal. I think they were focusing on the big institutional investor because I think they went very quickly to the 8 billion valuation round. And I don't, I think mm-hmm. that is already beyond most crypto native organizations appetite. Yeah. What's your appreciation? There's obviously a lot of criticism now, like no one, no one's doing due diligence. You look at the Sequoia memo, it sounds like, you know, now you laugh at it at the time, you know, as you said, people work heavily like vying to have a lead position, get allocations in these rounds. Obviously now people are very critical. No one's doing diligence. Um, t- can you talk a little bit about that? I'm curious if you believe that to be true. How do you manage your process? Like you talked about risk management earlier. We can get to that in a second, but just pure due diligence for early stage investments, which I know you do, or just generally, how do you approach it? Like, how do you, how do you not see these things, these like yellow flags, red flags? I think we try our best to do the most due diligence, but I would say we definitely were affected by how fast the market were moving. Um, I think from the Q4 of 2021 onward until Q2 2022, we were doing five to seven deals a month, which were definitely um, above the intended number. But there are simply so many different ecosystem worth investing in and so many different verticals to look at. You and obviously that time everyone was brimming with optimism. You know, Web3 is the future. You know, there's so much potentials. You just can't afford to miss out on the next OpenSea, the next Axie Infinity, the next Uniswap. So if you are not restricting yourself to just one sector or one ecosystem, it's simply become natural that you need to invest a, a bit more actively than let's say non-crypto VC. Um, and I think that definitely lead to a slight, in some cases, pretty significant drop in the time and resources you devoted to due diligence. But I think this affected different investment firms to a different degree. For us, I think we still do a very thorough DD, but we definitely were not given sufficient time in some cases. And I think uh, we... I think that the pendulum swing from one one extreme to another extreme. In the bear market, people become extremely skeptical. Uh, even from some 
teams that have kind of proven themselves to a certain extent, people still say, you know, these are all temporarily phenomenon. It might not be sustainable. But in a bear mar- in a bull market, even though there's nothing been proven, it's just pure concept. People think, you know, there's so much potential here. The team is great, you know. So I think that I think that's what happened. But yes, most generally speaking, less due diligence are being done uh in a bull market. Arthur, when um I want to go back to why people used FTX because my, my understanding is that they just had the tightest spreads. Like for that kind of prosumer institutional audience, it was a really good exchange, especially in Asia. Um, was there ever a concern that folks, was it just kind of a known understanding that Alameda was kind of picking off trades, but like that was okay because because the spreads were so tight? Not really. I think there was understanding that Alameda is one of the biggest market maker on FTX, but they, I think there were public statements that after the first year of FTX inception, Alameda is apparently no longer the biggest market maker anymore. Um, I think I found it from some of the public interview or podcasts SBF have given. So <clears throat> I think the liquidity is great, but people never really think that uh, it's only Alameda. There are probably a lot of other market makers. And when you see on the volume leaderboard, you see Vintermute, you see Fort Wang. So yeah, hmm. I think one of the biggest innovation that FTX have done is the cross-margin collateral and you can interchangeably use different stable coins as a collateral and all the other random assets that were assigned different collateral factor. I think that make it a lot more easier to manage your position, especially when you are running like a spread position where you are long Bitcoin, you are short ETH, essentially. FTS is usually the best way to manage this kind of like a different position at the same account. How are you guys using um, FTX? I mean, thankfully, it sounds like you guys were not largely unaffected. Um, But I'm curious if you could give us a little bit more insight into what kind of products you were using um, and and maybe how others, uh, other funds um, used it as well. I think we were mainly on a central exchange site. We were mainly using Binance and FTX. Um, But... Uh, recent months, we have not been uh, trading actively because we don't see there's much opportunity in the market. So we just took uh, all of our money out from centralized exchange and put it into cold storage, actually, because we don't want to be over trading it uh, because the market condition simply wasn't conducive. We also trade with some of the other OTC desks like Galaxy or others. So yeah, I think I think that's how we manage it. I think how do you, um, you know, I, I still remember there are very specific moments in time where you, you know, you feel like this, you're going to survive survivability mode, like at all costs and, and you assess counterparty risk, you know, March, 2020, right? Everyone was calling around desks to make sure that they're like solvent. Uh, now, of course, everyone's looking around and, and asking who else, who's next, right? You got you know, Voyager, BlockFi, mostly retail, but then you also know what, you know, FTX, I think was just huge. You know, I'm curious from a risk management standpoint, like what do you see in the market? Like how we had a earlier episode where the guys from Framework were on at the time, it wasn't clear FTX was going to, you know, resume withdrawals. And we didn't kind of know the extent of the mess of the shit show actually. Um, but we were, I think, Jason, you and I have the opinion that it was going to be way larger of a contagion of an impact than perhaps Voyager or BlockFi. Sounds to me like it still is, but I'm curious to get your perspective of how you think about contagion effects and how you think about like some of these like risks that the market may not be seeing or assessing. Yeah, I think the two major categories of uh, 
market participants that are going to be impacted are quite well known by now. One is the remaining major lenders. I think we all know who they are. And another category are trading firms and market makers. I think that this will lead to a significant deterioration in liquidity. And a lot of the, I think probably this is less discussed. A lot of the startups that have tokens, they have lent to market makers. They are in risk of not getting these token back um, because if some of the market making firm are also going down, they are holding this token on their balance sheet. This become a liability to all the startup that have loaned them the token to market make. I know for a fact that Alameda were providing market making services to a big number of crypto startups projects and they are not paying back all these tokens they were borrowing to do market making. And that is a, a pretty big issue that were not discussed sufficiently in the market right now. Arthur, can you just, can we dig deeper into that? Can you explain like the actual mechanics? So like, let's say I'm a, let's say I'm a founder. I raise a round, Alameda leads it. I have a token. Like, can you just exp like almost walk through the whole life cycle of that? Yeah. So usually when a project raise, assuming there's a token and when a token is going to get listed, most of the time they will want to get a market maker to provide some sort of liquidity. So you don't end up with a, a crazy environment where the token is listed, but there's so little liquidity and volume on the token. And Alameda were obviously one of the largest market maker and well-known one. And they also approach a lot of the project to provide these services, especially for the project they have invested in. I don't think they force it, but it definitely helps that they are investing in so many projects and help to build the relationship. Even for some projects that they did not invest in, um, they still, uh, the, these projects still engage Alameda as uh, a market maker. So what happened is these projects will uh, sign an agreement, a market making agreement for the market, for Alameda to provide a certain amount of liquidity. And these projects will usually loan this market maker a certain percentage of the token to market make. And sometimes it entails cash as well. And yeah, so this become like a loan from the project to the market making firm. So I have, so if I have 10 million tokens outstanding, I'm going to give 20% of them? No, 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 not okay. so much. De depends. Uh, depends on the float. It's usually relative to the float. So okay. if the float is only 5%, uh, the the project are probably going to give 2% to the market making firm. And I'm and I'm also going to pay uh, some sort of fee, an annual fee yes. or something. Like 200, the, there's a few different models. And... Yep. Yep. Um, there's some, usually like a, there's a monthly retainer fee model. There is also some market making firm that doesn't take a fixed fee, but they want the team to sell them a cheap call option on a token. So let's say the token is trading at $2 right now. They want the team to sell them a, a call option like strike at $3 with like a two-year expiry. So the, the market-making firm will benefit from the upside. And actually, I think this become one of the biggest profit center for some market-making firm. And, um, okay, so so now walk me through to what happened. So now walk me through to the... Alameda's impact on some of these companies. So they, okay, so you give your tokens to Alameda. Now, basically those tokens are sitting with Alameda, but Al, but they're not going to get those tokens back, right? Yep. So that just decreases the total float of the, that just decreases the token supply, right? Temporarily until the chapter 11 process find a way to liquidate those tokens. But mm. these token technically belongs to the project, right? So it might lead to some project losing a big part of their treasury native token because mm -hmm. this become 
uh, asset of Alameda and they, I don't think they will recognize the liability with an offsetting method. So, yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah, it's too bad. I, I I just started to get investor updates from folks saying that they had, you know, 40% of their treasury held with FTX, 70% of their treasury. I mean, what of your portfolio, I mean, how many how many portfolio companies do you think end up getting killed by by this, by by FTX and Alameda, by, by their treasury getting cut in half, right? A lot of companies just can't handle a, a treasury getting cut in half overnight. They're not set up for that. Yeah, uh, from the update we have received, there is less than five that were hit by FTX collapse. Mm. I think two of them have a sizable balance on it. The rest are fine. So I would say for, from our portfolio, less than five, but there could be some other that have not updated us yet. Uh, we also checked with most of them. I would say more than half of them should be fine. Uh, we have checked with more than half of our portfolio company. The rest, they haven't replied us yet. Mm. And is that the same with funds too? Would you say that it's a pretty small percentage of funds? Because I know the, you know, they're, they're the multi-coins of the world. The folks who are very close with FTX got, got hit pretty hard. Would you, obviously, I, you know, heart goes out to Travis Kling too at Ikigai. He got hit, uh, Ikigai got hit pretty hard and Travis is an amazing dude. Um, would you say it's a small percentage of funds or would you say the percentage of funds that got really hit hard from this is, is, is actually higher? I think the percentage is not high if you include venture fund in the whole landscape, because venture fund by nature do not need to keep a lot of money on FTX. So, and given most of the new fund raised over the past 12 to 14, 12 to 24 months are venture funds. I don't think those venture funds are that badly hit by FTX, but the liquid fund are definitely hit, especially for those that run an active arbitrage and Delta neutral strategy. These category of funds are the one that are most likely to be hit by FTX collapse. Because yep. they're keeping all of their capital on exchange. They, they, by the virtue of their strategy, they need to. Yep. Yeah. It's a real shame. It's too bad. Yep. There's, there's talk about now, I think there was, um, what is it, Ken Griffin from Citadel um, coming out and saying, hey guys, like, look at traditional finance. All this could have been avoided. You know, you don't have the exchange acting as a custodian, like those functions are always separate separated. in large, separated in large part because of, you know, learnings from the past, you know, Bernie Madoff kind of situations. And so now there are rules and regulations around that. Um, do you find it, we talk a lot about regulation, obviously now I do want to get into this topic of how you feel that, you know, what are the things what is the regulatory kind of implications of all of this? But from your perspective on the risk management side of things, like, did you ever find that alarming? Um, did you ever conceive that someone like FTX could like go under or commingle funds? Like, you know, there weren't ever proof of reserves. Um, all of this is like now obvious, right? For everyone. It's like, well, holy shit. Like, yeah, maybe we all should have been a little bit more, demanding of all these things, but we weren't like, and then everything now comes to light, right? There's now reports of all the partying, all the, you know, all the stuff going down in Bermuda. But like, I'm just curious, like there were multiple conferences in Bermuda. There were multiple people that like took like, like that traditional fund manager, Anthony's was a Scarmooch, like Skybridge, who like took money from like Sam was give, doling out money to like most venture funds. Like, why, why is it that like all this stuff came to light? Did you like ever suspect 
that like there was shady shit going down on FTX? I'll give you my side of the story, but like I'm curious if like if at any point in time you thought like, hmm, maybe it's too good to be true or these guys are just up to no good. I'm I'm curious. I definitely don't see the scale of this uh, fraud because I think what I have always been a bit more wary is <clears throat> how FTX or Sam like to create new Solana ecosystem coin with a very high FDV but low float. I think Serum fully diluted valuation at one point is 100 billion, which is ridiculous. And they have a very long vesting. Um, so all this thing is very predatory, but you can say this is like a bad business practice. It's not fraud. So I think, yeah, I don't think I would have expected them to commingle user funds because without doing that, they are supposedly very profitable. So we were probably thinking of like a bad business practice, but not to a level of fraud. Santi, yeah. you say you said you have some stories maybe or I have one story. Yeah. Like I was in Singapore, uh, well, on my way to Singapore to the first Binance conference in January of 2019. And this is like pretty, this is a bear market. This is actually marked the bottom of like certain coins like SNX, which Arthur, you're intimately familiar with. But on the way there, I stopped in Hong Kong and I, and I went into the small office of Alameda and Sam was there in his little beanbag. And it was like a very small operation. He was getting like a couple of chairs and he was like staffing. He was like, and, and in that conversation, we talked about two things. One, what Alameda was. Cause for me, it was a surprise. I had no idea what Alameda research was. I'm like, and then there were like rumblings that it was like handling the largest, like, like volume of like Bitcoin or this kimchi trade. And, but it was like, it was came to a surprise to me. And then he talked about the opportunity to potentially invest in Alameda and the terms of that. And I found to me that was like, I didn't end up investing in Alameda because the terms I thought were like ridiculous, um, like worse than Rentec. And like everyone wants to get into Rentec. And I was like, how is this possible? Like, it makes what, no what, sense. It was what, like, were, what were the terms? If I remember correctly, it was like guaranteeing like a 15% return. Oh, was, um, this, was this the high return, the 15%? Yes. With yeah, no th- th- this was, no. there have been other chats circulating of what seems to be a deleted user, which allegedly is Sue. Too. of a telegram group um crypto fundamentals anyways and and there was like chat about that um i think it he probably saw or people saw the same deck but i i found it to yeah. be i don't know my spidey kind of sentence went went off and mo- mo- most importantly for me it was like the level of the operation was like concerning there was just like they were moving very fast Six months later, he, he the second thing that he talked about in that in that meeting was like last an hour was that he wanted to build an exchange, and that's that's the end of what I heard. Six months later, someone sends me a link. Is like go to FTX. I'm like, holy shit, these guys move really fast. But in that meeting, I I, I thought like, I don't know. I come from traditional finance background. Like when we build Parify, like there's certain processes that you need to have. There's some like walls that you need to have. Like, and I've always felt that like. Even though if crypto is like not as regulated or whatever, you just need to assume that there's a level to your point, Arthur, of like operating in business practices, especially if you're in, as a fund or just operating in like finance that you need to abide by because it's just the right thing to do. Um, and I felt that that was not, uh, I think they ended up firing this particular person that to me was just like, it was like pretty shady. And I was like, yeah, no, uh, I don't know. I'd rather not. That was my story. 
let, let me let me ask both of you guys this because this is something I'm still trying to think through is at what point like basically did Sam build so obviously Sam I think built Alameda with good intentions to build a huge trading firm like I think he was not like a scammer that I'm basically trying to wonder what at what point in the story does Sam become um, a malicious actor basically so I think one some some people think that everything was going fine until Alameda got on the wrong side of a bunch of big trades during the whole like Terra, Luna, Three Arrows, mm -hmm. Celsius blow up, all that stuff. And then he used customer funds from FTX to plug the hole. Maybe it was that, maybe it wasn't even his fault in that it was Sam Trabuco wanted to like got on the wrong side of the trades and Sam was like, oh shit, let's move the funds over. Um, but, but, uh, but then when the backdoor thing came out, the like backdoor system to get, to avoid the compliance uh, inside of FTX, that made me think that, Oh, this is a whole, this has been going on for years. So Arthur, I'm just curious, like, how, like when did Sam start becoming a bat? Was this all set up with malicious intent? Do you think? I think the problem is Sam likely used his effective altruism principle as <clears throat> an excuse to justify whatever action he is doing uh, after a certain time period. When you look at it, like the whole low float high FDV stuff was not good, but he was very aggressive in pursuing this. That was in 2020 or 2021, early 2021. Um, he clearly did not feel there's anything wrong with this. And by having essentially no firewall between Alameda and FTX, he clearly did not think there's an issue. So, and I think at one point where he was just idolized at this extent, um, you just don't think you can do anything wrong. Um, like whatever you do, you think you can cover it up and you you can self-justify it. And there's also like a rumors that he was tricking, he was taking on some drugs as well. Like he was the golden boy. He was very well received in the political circle, Congress appearance on a hearing. This is the, a treatment that not even some Bitcoin or crypto OG like Brian Armstrong were receiving. And he was getting it in a, such a short amount of time and rubbing shoulders with the leading athlete like Tom Brady, Steph Curry. I think that just lead him to think that he can't do wrong. And I think people can even lie to themselves at one point of time. And I think this is also quite similar to other firms that got very big in a short amount of time, like Three Arrows or even Celsius. Like why they were still lying until the last minute because they think that, you know, it's fine. I... I'm so successful, you know, whatever I do can be justified. So I, I think that's essentially what happened. And I think it's a, it's a slippery, slippery slope. Once you start doing something, although it's small, you kind of don't think anything matters anymore. Mm -hmm. yeah. The only thing I'll add to that is I do agree with a lot of what you said, Arthur. The only thing that I'm now a little bit perplexed by is this facade of effective altruism, because, you know, as we know, he's trying to sell a $38.5 million penthouse which belongs to, I guess, all of us. Um, but I am very, you know, you know what I mean? I, it sounds to me like there's a big facade of, 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 of effective of, of his reasons to doing stuff. So it's like, I, I think it's all, I think it's, I think it's, this has been going on for years. I think the story that everyone talks about with the, 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 the arbitrage trade in 2017, whenever someone who works in media, whenever you hear a story, over and over and over again that is on purpose that's not by accident why did you hear that story why have we heard that story mm -hmm. so much it's because sam wanted us to all think that they were a market making firm 
a market neutral neutral firm, mm -hmm. not a directional fund. We all yeah. he wanted all of us to think that Alameda was this like market making firm. They didn't take directional bets. Whereas really, when that Ian Allison uh, CoinDesk mm -hmm. story came out, I mean, their portfolio they, was like was like my friend's DGen mm -hmm. retail portfolio. Like it wasn't yeah. a good portfolio. It was shocking. Let, let, let me ask you guys a question. The one that I'm thinking about here is CZ, because he I think has he was a big investor. He had a huge bag of FTT, and I think he he has access to you know, perhaps anyone as connected as anyone in this industry. And, you know, he laid the hammer at some point. He had up to a value of what, 500 million of FTT tokens. Why, why did he wait until now? Because if this stuff had been going on for, we'll know exactly when all this stuff could started to happen. But as soon as you start getting into trouble, I tend to think this is a whole, this is the end of the, the Luna kind of fiasco. Like everyone just got in a really bad mess, plugging holes. But this has been going on for, when did Luna start? Like March, April, like you know, six months ago. Why didn't you do it then? And presumably, if you knew about all this stuff, and Alameda was like commingling stuff, I got to think that like it's kind of hard to like, I think, yeah. hide this if, if it had been going on for a long time. Like why? Why just wait until now? Why not do it yep. a year um, ago, two years ago? I I don't think CZ actually know that. FTX was commingling user fund and were actually stealing from customers' money to fund all these ridiculous purchases or crazy investment. I think he just sensed that it doesn't seem right where FT, uh, Alameda's balance sheet is so fragile. And essentially what we understand is Binance Lab, they rarely sell any investment, which is why they write off the entire Luna investment because Binance was just making so much money, they don't really bother to exit most of their investment. They might have done some, but from what we heard and collaborated by multiple sources in the industry, Binance Lab is a fairly long-term investor, generally speaking. And CZ and Binance is clearly not in need of money. They probably didn't bother. And that kind of give them a little bit of leverage against FTX and SAM. If they sell it all, then they lose that leverage. So, but it, yeah, it just happened that their balance sheet is a lot more fragile than everyone have expected, including CZ. I don't think it's positive for CZ to kill a competitor. I don't think he expected this level of, uh, of fraud to happen as well. And actually, just to bring back to the previous point a little bit, I think people might have forgotten, but one of the fact that gave a lot of legitimacy to Alameda was the fact that they have two accounts on the BitMEX leaderboard, PNL leaderboard. So people kind of think that they were actually good traders and profitable traders. All right, everyone, time for a quick word from Circle and USDC. As a crypto user, you know the power of stable coins, dollar digital currencies that transcend borders, banking hours, and legacy financial rails. Well, Circle's USDC has quickly become one of the most trusted and widely used stable coins. It's simple. People use USDC because of its composability, its stability, and its reserve transparency. And USDC isn't just adopted by a few of us DeFi DGENs and DAOs and NFT marketplaces, crypto companies alike, they all leverage USDC to diversify their treasury, asset management, and ecosystem-wide composability. The adoption's clear. USDC's grown to more than $50 billion in circulation since launching in 2018. 
We all have and we all will continue to take shots on our favorite volatile crypto assets, obviously, but USDC is one of the easiest ways to store your funds in a stable asset that can be used to send value around the world almost instantly. It lowers the cost of cross-border payments. It integrates into the growing ecosystem of crypto apps. As a seamless, trusted dollar digital currency, USDC is a zero to one opportunity for the financial system. If you want to learn more about USDC, I would recommend you check out the recently published Transparency Hub on circle.com. It's a great update to Circle's content on USDC. It outlines everything from links to their weekly reserve reports, monthly attestations, blog posts that are written by their exec team that highlight how and why USDC was built the way it is. Really recommend it. Just go to circle.com backslash transparency to access it. Now, let's get back to the show. Well, I would say that they were actually good traders and profitable traders, actually, for, for a long time. Like, I don't think you can argue against that. It's just that there's only so large that you can build a success. A market, a market neutral firm in crypto can only get so big. It can only scale as the size of crypto scales, and they wanted to yep. go bigger, right? So when you want to go bigger, you have to leave behind the market neutral strategy and take these long only strategies, which, which actually, Arthur, leads me into the next thing I wanted to ask you about, which is you've brought up these like low float, high FDV uh, strategies that they would deploy a lot and mentioned the Solana ecosystem a couple times. Can you just share kind of what they were doing with the Solana ecosystem? And that'll lead into, I want to get your take on just Solana and where, where, where things go, but like, you know, they, they had some pretty sh uh, shady practices going on with the Solana ecosystem and kind of bundling different protocol tokens, selling them at discounts, propping up things, even venture investing, and then collaborate like basically killing protocols that they had even invested in can you just share some some of the things that they were doing in that ecosystem i think they were essentially the first um, big organization they were building on solana they built serum which is still the foundational liquidity platform of many DeFi apps on solana they were integrated with in fact which is why that right now they it, the community is trying to fork Serum right now because the admin key of Serum apparently is held by one FTX employee, which we do not know who who is he or she. And they also built Bonfida, Oxygen, and a couple of others. Obviously, most of these are like have very low traction and usage, but they were definitely the first group of builder, and they ship very quickly. Like, and that time. It's very hard to build on Solana because a lot of the documentation is not clear. It was not very developer friendly, but they were able to overcome this and ship Serum very quickly. And I, I think that's kind of the major influence they had there. And how they marketed these projects to the investor are, are the nefarious one. Like the, they basically, if you get in earlier, you get a lower price. They just keep increasing the price every price every day. And there was always like a very formal kind of effect to get people to contribute money as quick as possible. And obviously, I think there was some leak on the Telegram. Um, actually, I know the person directly. He was working for Sam back then. And a lot of the practice was questionable. What do you think the, the, long, the longer term impact is here on the Solana ecosystem? I think Solana is going through a very challenging period that in a way similar to the challenge Ethereum community faced from 2018 to 2019, where the ICO bubble burst and turned out that there isn't much useful stuff that have been built, except for fundraising tools and speculation and a lot of the failed projects. Same 
is going to happen to the Solana ecosystem and the community and the ecosystem will need a long time to recover from this. But that doesn't mean that what they were building, their technical architectural direction is wrong. But the community and balance sheet, the participants, the trust will take some time or probably a long time to be repaired. Yeah. You, so you think Solana is a strong, strong enough ecosystem at this point to weather the storm? I think it's tough to say, but uh, if you want to ask me, I, I think, yes, they should be able to survive this storm. But yeah. will they be able to exceed their previous all-time high in terms of user activity and market cap? Um, I can't say for sure. Santi, what do you think about that about Solana ecosystem next couple of years? I agree with Arthur. Um, I know a lot of the guys, we've had them on the episode. Um, I genuinely think that there are a lot of good builders in Solana. And I I think think I, I do, I sympathize in part with the team because they've taken it to the chin over and over and over. And I think, uh, it's just circumstances and, um, I think they're going through a tough time, but they've built, they seem to be very resilient. And one of the things that I like about Solana is they're not afraid to, uh, to me, a lot of the other kind of competing L1s, I don't think Solana wants to be or is doing things to suggest that they just purely want to like be an ETH killer. And I think the biggest testament of that is like their vision of like launching the phone. So I think like, I like that kind of thinking. It's a bit more bold. It's a bit more out there. But yeah, they they've had a, a very difficult year, yeah. um, and and so you know they've I think come out and like have tried to document as much as possible. They have a tweet, an ongoing like like port like website where they're trying to document and piece everything together. Um, so we'll keep monitoring the situation, but I do think it bounces back over time, um, and and they'll come out of it stronger. Probably it will take yeah. time to rebuild trust, but. To be fair, like uh, I guess the just to talk about the elephant in the room. To me, it feels like one of the more criticized things about all this stuff is um, they're like the fact that they sold like what is it six to eight percent of all the tokens to to to, to Sam to FTX or whatever. You know, it was a tough. I, I don't like particularly. I don't know all the details around that, but I'm curious to get your guys' thoughts on that. Like. I, that that to me is like they they've done other transactions protocols have done these type of OTC deals. I'm not like as cons- like I'm not overly critical about that. It's a, it's a huge percentage of the token supply, but I'm not like I don't think that will kill them if if you know what I mean. Yeah, uh, I think that will create a lot of selling pressure over the next twelve months because we do not know what will the bankruptcy estate do with the Solana token on Alameda's balance sheet. They might sell it via auctions or just sell it via OTC desk. I think that's the near-term challenges. I think in hindsight, you probably should not sell such a high percentage to one entity, but you cannot ignore the fact that FTX and Alameda were one of the biggest supporters of Solana back then. And they are the they are the first exchange to integrate Solana chain to list all the SPL token, and were essentially building on top of um, Solana. So I would say a lot of the early stage success of 
Solana can be attributed to how much resources FTX devoted to supporting them. So, Absolutely. Yeah. Yep. By the way, Santi, I pinged uh, Anatoly. We have Anatoly and Ben coming on the yes. uh, on the show in two weeks. So we will yeah. we'll dig more into it then. Uh, Arthur, I wanted to pivot and talk a little bit about uh, liquid the liquidation process. If you're comfortable talking about that, um, can you can you? I, I know you probably either don't want to or can't talk about Sue and Kyle too much here, but can you just for folks who don't know your background, can you give a little bit of the background and how you got impacted a couple months ago by, by things and just to kind of set up the conversation for the liquidation process? Again, I don't know how much you're able to talk about things, but yeah, we, I mean, in our public statement, we did mention that we were materially impacted and it is an ongoing process to sort out the situation. And yeah, I, I can't comment much on the detail because it's uh it's a there's a legal proceeding ongoing. Um but we were we are still communicating actively with the with the liquidator to sort out the situation. So it was unfortunate that we did not set up our fund in the best way at the beginning. Definitely one of the most expensive lessons ever. And I hope I do not need to pay for the same lesson again. But yeah, um, yeah. So right now we are moving forward, trying to resolve these situations. Um, but yeah, can you share the can you share uh, the learning there so that other people don't make the same expensive mistake? Or what what was the mistake there? I think this is not like a very new learning. It's just that when things goes well, nobody really refer to what is written in the legal contract, and a lot of people think they don't need to consult lawyers on many important advice. I mean, look at what Sam tweeted, right? He, that was clearly would not be advised by lawyers. <laughs> um, but turn out that when it when shit hits the fence, um, people will go back to refer to contract on a word by word basis. So mm-hmm. yeah, it's just very important to get legal advice on important manner that have big ramifications. Yep, and trust. Um, don't I would say people say don't trust, uh, but verify. But I would say you trust, but you verify. So I, I guess that's kind of the the challenge yeah. here and people do change over time and sometimes for the worse. Mm-hmm. And yeah, it's just something that, you know, you need, you need to be mindful of, you know, people might not be the same person that if you have known them in the beginning. Mm. How do you think that these li- liquidation uh, processes play out here with, with FTX and, and, and what are you kind of, when you look at what's happening, like, what, do, what are you looking at? Like are you looking at what liquidator, um... Yep, I think this is likely going to be the most complex liquidation or bankruptcy ever in the history due to the large number of creditors that were spread across different jurisdictions. I think FTX have more than 1 million creditors and I believe they operate or have customers from more than 50 countries. So this is going to be very complex. And right now it's not in liquidation yet. It's actually in chapter 11. There is a slim chance that the business can restructure, pay off, struck a deal with the creditor and continue to operate. Although I will not bang on it. And actually, I think the brand is so tarnished that it's not possible anymore. But yeah, it's going to be so complex. Like just to give you an example, just for three arrows, um, the counterparties are probably in the hundreds, um, low hundreds. And they gotten recognition in B on US court and Singapore court. But imagine when it comes to FTX, how much court recognition they need to get around the world because how 
how wide the user base is. And it's also, I'm not a lawyer, but it's also questionable that why is FTX filing for chapter 11, including the international? Because when you read the terms and conditions, FTX trading, which is the one we interact with, is an Antigua entity. And FTX digital market is headquartered in Bahamas. So by administering this in US, you're basically skipping the jurisdiction of Bahamas and Antigua. I know they are small countries, but BVI and Cayman is a small countries as well. They still administer some liquidation case as well. So yeah, this is going to be so complex. They will need to get, I would say, at least five to 10 major countries or jurisdictions called to acknowledge this liquidation before they can enforce a lot of the things they want or subpoena a lot of the counterparties that are not based inside US. Even this alone, I think will take six to 12 months. Yeah. And yeah, it's, it's just going to be so complicated. Yeah. I want to pivot to uh, Arthur. Can you talk about the what you're working on next? Or can I don't know if you can talk about No, I, I can talk about that. You, yes. Okay. Okay. So you're, so you're raising a fund now. Yeah. Yes. Um, I'm curious. I have a couple of questions just on like your crypto thesis moving forward. One is um, what is the impact that this does on token deals, right? Because token deals kind of died after the last bull, after the 2017 bull market or like, okay, ICOs are dead. No more token deals. We don't need tokens. And then this recent market tokens were, were back. And it was like, oh, tokens make sense if they're the structured the right way. And, you know, if, if they're attached to a DeFi protocol that does really well, um, but again, now we're in, the, in a year into the bear market and people are like, tokens don't make sense. Uh, you need to invest in the equity of the company. So I'm just curious how you think about doing token deals moving forward. I think right now it almost become a universal standard to bundle a token deal together with equity. I think there's a few reasons behind it. It's mainly due to US regulation. Uh, SAF contract went out of fashion. So most of the venture deal are done in a way that you invest in the equity and you get a token warrant. So if the project decided to launch a token in future, you will also get a token on a prorata basis. And I think this also gives the investor more protection when it comes to governance, because when you own equity, you can actually, you actually have a voting right and you can also be elected to sit on the board. Um, yeah, obviously it's very interesting that FTX doesn't have a board of directors. <laughs> But okay, let's move forward. On yeah, this I one. mean, ho hopefully the impact um, of this is that people end up doing more due diligence on companies yes. and put in place boards. Yeah. Yeah. So I think it's not for the, f I think that yes, pure token deal will go out of fashion unless the project and team are built up since the beginning in a very decentralized manner. Yeah, I believe majority of the deals going forward will continue to be an equity plus token warrant deal. Yeah. Do you... So I know Santi plays very heavily in the private markets, but at this point, the public markets are just getting so attractive, I would say, in crypto. What percentage of the fund will be public versus private? And Santi, I'd throw the same question to you. Like, how are you thinking about public versus private? Arthur, I'll throw it to you first, but like, how are you thinking about just doing, uh, investing in the private markets versus the public markets in crypto? Um, our new fund will be 100% focused on the liquid side of the market. We call it a liquid venture fund doesn't mean that we are going to be trading it on a very frequent basis. But I think that there's just so much opportunity in the space, in the liquid side, that it's worth to devote 100% focus and attention on the liquid side. And I think from a risk management point of view, a liquid fund can better manage the market risk uh, 
better than the venture fund. Look at, okay, again, sorry to keep using FTX as an example, but invested 200 million, whole thing unravel in one week. There's just no way you can manage the risk. I think people are fine because you sign up for a venture deal, but I think that if you are given a similar risk return profile and you can actually also manage the risk, I would think this offer a superior risk adjusted return. Like I also get a venture mm. return profile, like probably like a five X or 10 X in three, five years. But if the fundamental do change or the macro condition change, I can, I'm able to change my mind. And also I do not need to compete in a very crowded primary market because the fact is for some very high profile and highly contested deal, most investors, unless you are the top, like the top five funds, you will not be able to get your desired allocation. But when we, in the liquid market, we can determine on the exact amount of position we want subject to liquidity constraint. Yeah. Well, it's interesting. I was looking at FTT. It's trading at like 600 million fully diluted valuation still. So markets are definitely not rational. Um, but what that is telling you is it's sort of trading at you know, roughly 2%, 1.88% of the last round, 32 billion, right? Um, Arthur, I guess your point is, had you held FTT versus FTX equity, like th this discussion, like intellect, like this exercise has all come up again and again, like, would you rather own, I, and I've done it a number of times in the past, like, would I have rather owned FTT or FTX equity? Well, I guess what you're saying, which I agree with is, in this case, it would have been better to have FTT because you would have pocketed some cents on the dollar and could have managed risk much better if you're actively trading. Now, most VCs are not active traders, right? But still, yep. as a crypto venture investor, I've learned the hard way and over time that you need to have a strategy and become smarter on risk management and managing a position when it's liquid because you have a number and it grows. I remember investing in DeFi early on. You need to manage yep. risk that Definitely. you can't, you, you can't be a crypto manager and say, Oh, I'm not going to look at this stuff. It's like, no, wait a minute. If a position grows beyond 20% of your book, you have a, a almost, I was going to, I'm going to, you have kind of a responsibility to manage risk. Uh, and, and so, um, yeah, I don't know. Like I, I don't have any interest in, in raising a fund. Um, but I'm doing other stuff, but that, um, I will say angel only, it, two things. If <laughs> I were thinking about raising a fund right now, I would probably raise like a, what CZ is doing, like a, a distress fund, picking up pennies on the dollar. A lot of people are going to have to foresell. Con let's, we haven't talked about contagion. Let's talk about if the bankruptcy process lasts six years. I mean, look at Mangox. Let's just assume six years. And your typical duration of your capital is a year, maybe three. Well, there's going to be that mismatch allows for opportunities to buy folks out. Um, so there's probably going to be a huge amount of opportunities to do this type of strategy, I think, distress deals. Um, but um, the other thing is, I if I if I were not doing that, I I too, tend to agree with Arthur. I think the there's a lot of opportunities in doing the work in the public side of things. Um, and it has been very easy. Like the last cycle, I think it just started to feel over the top where there was just a huge amount of capital on the private side. These deals were being chased up and propped up. Like you, to your point, Arthur, it, it deals were going from 20 million, like 
fully diluted valuation to a hundred to a billion. You were like, how is this happening? Meanwhile, you have projects like trading out like below their seed round valuation with a lot of traction and visible on chain. And so I find the public markets uh, pretty compelling. Um, now, do I think that you were getting paid enough right now for the level of risk that you're taking? Probably not. Hmm. Like, I don't generally think that. Like, DeFi yields are very low. At some point, it will be really interesting to bid. Um, but I don't know. I don't. F yeah. I don't feel that we're there yet. I think are if there, anything, yeah. Are you a buyer at these at these prices? You agree with Santi that we're not there yet, or you're a buyer at these prices? I think it's very project specific. Depends on what sector and what project you are looking at. Um, I don't like to generalize. Um, I think something for some asset I would be a buyer, but for some uh, I'm definitely not buying here yet. Like if I, uh, the majors seem to me like fairly like app ETH is a very clean bet. None of this yeah. is financial, like, you know, just, but like absent that, like, I don't know what I'm worried about is time and time again, we felt that like we've resolved and figured out, okay, we kind of like are starting to get a feeling of contagion and, and then another big blow up happens. And I just don't know how long, and I don't have good visibility into the second, third order effects of all this stuff will be. And so. Yeah. But, you know, again, if you're a long-term holder, if you have a long-term horizon, I think you start seeing good opportunities and windows regardless, right? Arthur, you said something which I think is very true um, when you were talking about if you use FTX and, and you said you moved a lot of stuff off chain because it's just, it's a very difficult market. And I think it will continue to be really difficult, uh, even though, you know, we kind of saw a decent CPI print. Yeah. Arthur, I know it's late out in Singapore right now. Anything else that you that we've missed that we haven't talked about that you think is really important or just any any last words that you want to share here? Yeah, I I think this is probably one of the biggest takeaway. Um due to the nature of the industry, we just keep giving more opportunity for the bad actor they are willing to take shortcut to rise to the top a lot quicker than the people that are trying to do it the right way and trying to do the right stuff. I think the, um, the ratio of good to bad people, I mean, obviously that's simplistic, simplistic way of looking at things, are probably not that different compared to other like traditional finance industry. It's just that in our industry, it's a lot easier for the guys that are willing to take shortcuts to rise to the top. And I think collectively, we probably need to figure out what are there any effective way we can mitigate this um to you know so that there are some effective check and balances in place so that the bad actors do get stopped earlier on are, or actually are not possible for them to commit such huge level of fraud um yeah like with ftx going down um binance is gonna be the largest player in the market like i said in the past uh just now i think cz um he's playing a long game he's not gonna do anything stupid but that is not kind of the reassurance we want right like are there other effective check and balances and when you look at you know the two guys trying to make a comeback capitalizing on these opportunities and they are still getting a lot of attentions yeah apparently these space have a very short memories and I i'm not sure what how beside a very strict regulation that will almost definitely 
kill a lot of the innovation and how this space can operate in future I, I i don't have a good answer on how we can solve this issue yet like how do we stop the bad actor from getting too big when you figure that out let me know because it, it's not just crypto by the way right bernie madoff i like there, this happens in traditional capital markets too so yeah anyways arthur this has been an amazing conversation i appreciate you coming on man i appreciate you recording this late at night out in singapore in such a crazy week um means a lot that you took an hour out of your day to do this Yep, no problem. It's my pleasure to be here. Yep. <laughs>